The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. You would grab your Old Testaments and turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55 will be there in a few moments. It's wonderful to be with everyone this morning. It's a joy to be gathered with those of like precious faith to worship our God. It's always something that is enjoyable and beneficial to do on the first day of the week, especially as we remember the Lord's death. And so I commend you for being here. I'm encouraged by your presence and edified by your participation in worship. And I hope you have been as well. And I hope that continues into this lesson. Isaiah 55 is... I think a very familiar um, passage of prophecy in the Old Testament for us, especially as it pertains to the two verses 8 and 9. And this is something that's often quoted and referred to. But I want us to consider the concepts there in those two verses, first by understanding the, the context of this particular passage in the Old Testament. As many prophecies in the Old Testament do, um, Becoming a twofold meaning, so does Isaiah 55. Sometimes prophecies in the Old Testament just refer to an event that comes in the future. Maybe it's a destruction of a city or a rise of a king or whatever it may be. And a lot of times we see messianic prophecies, which sometimes only have to do with the Messiah. Sometimes it has to do with a, an event that will occur, um, deliverance that will occur for the people of God that are the physical Israel, especially as it pertains to Isaiah 55 out of a Babylonian captivity, um, but also has reference chiefly to a messianic promise that is to come and fulfilled in Jesus, who is the Christ. That's the case in Isaiah 55. The first five verses in figurative language describe for us some blessings of the messianic kingdom and a fellowship with God, like we see in verse 1, coming and buying these things without money and without price. They're things that are given to us freely. Certainly, we've got to meet conditions that God has given to us, but we by no means purchase these things as a matter of, of merit. These things are given freely to us, especially we're impressed with verse 3 when he speaks about how he'll make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And that's, of course, in reference chiefly, I think, to the lineage of David, which would bring about the Christ and the mercies to follow in his death on the cross that we just um, remembered but in verse 6, there's something that's important that Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Spirit, mentions. In verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And so there's this anticipation of mercies to follow in the Christ and the promises concerning that messianic kingdom. And those are sureties, those are guarantees, but it's also something that must be met with the obedience to the Lord. And that's what he commends or, or at least encourages rather the brethren there to do in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. There are benefits that he offers. They are the products of God's grace and the advantages of the death of Jesus, God's son on the cross, his blood that is the propitiation for sins, his resurrection, which is the security of our own resurrection to life. All of those things are offered and they're promised and they're a guarantee, but you've got to seek the Lord to inhabit those promises or to, to gain those promises. 
and appropriate them according to the conditions he set. And it's obvious by this verse, verse 6, that there is a time when the Lord may not be found. And so eventually we'll die or judgment will come or perhaps even those who have continually put off obeying the Lord's commands, their hearts become hardened and hardened to the extent that they're past the ability to even see truth. There's a danger in that. We've got to seek the Lord while he may be found. And verse 7 stands as one of those conditions in seeking the Lord. Forsake your sin, forsake your ways, forsake your thoughts. You've got to repent so that you can return to the Lord and then he'll bless you with that mercy. God does not forgive those who persist in their sin. We've got to make a change in our ways. And he especially notes there, we've got to turn and forsake our way and our thoughts. And he gives a very good reason why this is necessary if we're to be recipients of the salvation offered in the Messiah. In verse 8, For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The reason why man needs to forsake his ways and thoughts are not simply because a lot of times those ways and thoughts are inherently sinful, but those ways and thoughts cannot guide them out of that sin and into righteousness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, the Old Testament is quoted, um, who has known the things that God has prepared beforehand for those who love him. We can't understand the will that God has for us and the plans he has for our salvation unless he reveals it to us. It cannot enter into our heart. We cannot find out what God wants from us unless he tells us specifically. And so our thoughts and our ways can never lead us to forgiveness and can never lead us to salvation. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23 says, The way of man is not in himself. It is not a man who walks to direct his own steps. And in Proverbs 14 and verse 12, a verse that we're all familiar with, tells us why, that the end there is death concerning those thoughts and ways. And so forsake your thoughts, forsake your ways, seek the Lord for his thoughts and his ways exceed abundantly above ours, they're superior. And essentially in verses 10 and 11, we see where we find those thoughts and ways. He says, as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And so all the blessings of verses one through five that are inherent within the word of God that is revealed to us, he says, if you follow that word, his word will accomplish exactly what it set out to accomplish. It is infallible. It is almighty and powerful. And if we simply submit to his way in his word, we will receive the salvation of our souls. But you know, it works on the negative side of things too. Someone may say, well, you see, we preach the gospel to the lost over here in this area and no one obeyed. That happened many times with the apostle Paul. He went into the Jews in the synagogue and they rejected him because he had rejected their way and accepted the way of Christ. Did the word fail? I don't think it did. It goes right along with verses 10 and 11. It will accomplish and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. We read in First or Second Corinthians, I believe, chapter 2, about the fragrance that is dispensed by the apostles as they're taken captive by Christ. And that that fragrance of Christ means death to those who are perishing, but life to those who are saved. And that's something that the word accomplishes. God's will is that every man know they either are recipients by God's grace of salvation or they're not going to heaven because they haven't submitted to God's ways. 
And so either way, God's will accomplishes what it set out to accomplish. It condemns those who are not submissive to it, and it graces those who have submitted to it with the mercy and salvation and forgiveness that are offered in its pages. But let us understand the why, because his thoughts and his ways are higher than our thoughts and our ways. And I think we need to grasp this in a couple of different ways. We'll look at the same concept that is inherent within these two verses of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, really from two different kind of perspectives, that men sometimes like to subscribe to the notion that their thoughts and their ways are superior to God's thoughts and his ways. They, they find some grandeur in their words and thoughts. And they look at God's words and thoughts as not as something that is magnificent and wondrous and, and that exceeds anything that they could ever devise themselves, but they actually go with their thoughts and ways thinking that they're far better than God's thoughts and ways. That's obviously wrong. But I think also some men look at it in the way of a, a negative for themselves as they see God's thoughts and ways but they fail to appreciate the grandeur in God's thoughts and ways. And in so doing, they think that even if they're submitting to God's thoughts and ways, it won't be enough. They fail to see the power in God's word. And what that does is it actually leads to discouragement, and that discouragement leads to an inactivity. We'll think about that a little more in a minute. But let us note first that our ways and our thoughts are certainly inferior to God's ways and thoughts. We should never think that what our opinions are, that they surpass God's wisdom. We should always understand, no matter what we think, no matter what we feel, whatever we've had happen to us in the past, that God's ways and thoughts are more in grandeur, if you will, than our own, especially concerning wisdom. We need to make sure we don't fall into that category of those who view God's wisdom as foolishness. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, the Apostle Paul explained that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what we have here is a difference in perspective. Those who are perishing, they see God's vast wisdom as not wisdom, but foolishness. And us who are being benefited by that wisdom, we actually understand it as it is. It's power. It is certainly in depth and beneficial to us. Consider that it is foolishness to those who are perishing. It does not mean that because they are perishing, they view God's wisdom as foolishness. It means that they view God's wisdom as foolishness, and therefore they are perishing. The ones who are perishing are perishing because they reject God's wisdom, and they think their own surpasses in value. In 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 14, the Apostle Paul further explains that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, that is the wisdom of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That's the man that's perishing. And he's perishing because he can't see beyond the physical. He can't see beyond the natural and start thinking a little bit in a spiritual way. He can't understand that in order to understand the spiritual things, he's got to become a fool that he may become wise. And that's what the man who is being saved in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, who views God's wisdom in the message of the cross as power to salvation. That's what he has done. In chapter 3 of this same epistle in verse 18, it says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And that's the difference. That one man looks at God's wisdom and thinks, I can do better than that. I'm smarter than that. That's foolishness. That's nothing of value. 
And rejecting that, he cannot understand the spiritual things because he's not being guided by the one who is spirit. John 4.24 describes God in that way. And so he's perishing in a sense because God's wisdom is the only wisdom that can save. But then there is a man of humility, and that is the man who has submitted to the gospel's call, who understands that he doesn't know the way of salvation, that God's thoughts and ways are higher than his thoughts and ways, and so instead he views himself as a fool. Even if he's the smartest man in the world, he understands that's nothing in comparison to what God can reveal to him. And so he becomes a fool that he may become wise with the wisdom of God, which is far superior. It possesses those things which are necessary for life. And the Apostle Paul mentions an example of how an individual might be guilty of viewing his ways and thoughts, his wisdom as superior in grandeur to God's wisdom. Notice in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. Those individuals who act as if they're preaching the gospel, but really all they're doing is saying a lot of fancy things and fancy ways about man's philosophy and wisdom. They fool themselves. And also what they do in actually thinking they're proclaiming the gospel, they're neutralizing the gospel with that which doesn't come from God in the first place. There's a great danger in that. And I suggest to you that what they think is their ways and their thoughts, whether they'd admit to it or not, or whether they see the implications in that or not, are greater than God's thoughts and ways. And the Apostle Paul was not guilty of that, which is what he mentioned in verse 17. And he goes on to explain in chapter 2 in verse 1. He said, I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He truly did hide behind the cross of Christ as we often encourage each other to do. The Apostle Paul was not one who would try to reason these things to the people in his own ways, in his own wisdom. But he took the very words of God revealed to him and he hid behind them, declaring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He understood the idea that his thoughts and ways, no matter how wise they appear to man or himself, are inferior to God's thoughts and ways. He didn't seek grandeur in his thoughts, but he acknowledged that which inhered in God's thoughts. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, Peter writes by inspiration, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. That is, as we say, be silent where the Bible is silent and speak where the Bible speaks. That's essentially what Peter is saying. Don't add to and don't take away from the word of God. Speak as God speaks. Oracles, meaning utterances, referring to the revelation of God. Just let God speak to you. Let God speak to us. Some fail to see the importance in that. And they fall prey to the same thing that Paul warned against in Colossians chapter 2. In verse 4, speaking of the fullness of God in Christ bodily, he says, This I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. In verse 8 of Colossians 2, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. We need to beware lest we fall prey to the seed that the devil tries to plant in our minds, that we somehow can explain spiritual things better than God. We somehow can know the way to heaven better than the word of God and his son revealing that to us. This kind of undervaluing the profundity and simplicity at the same time of God's vast wisdom declared in his word, it leads into these opinionated thoughts, trying to comprehend some things which are not meant to be comprehended by man, like 
God is both God and and man at the same time in his son Jesus. How can we be 100% God, 100% man? And individuals think that their thoughts are somehow more in grandeur than God's thoughts that express that truth and they start to reason away the humanity of Jesus or they start to reason away the deity of Jesus instead of just accepting that God's ways and thoughts are superior to ours and we're just going to accept them as face at face value. And that's just one example of many we could go into. We need to simply accept that God is greater than us. One other example is this misunderstanding of what God desires and is pleased with in worship. We need to understand the grandeur of God's authorized worship, not adding anything to it to make it greater or not taking anything away from it, thinking that it's not great enough and it's it's not something we should be doing. But instead, we need to understand what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4 and verse 24, that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We're familiar with this verse and we know what Jesus is saying essentially is that the worship that is going to be authorized and accepted and pleasing in God's sight in this age to come when all will worship him in this way, that is true worshipers, is worship in sincerity according to God's prescription in the word of God. You do what God told you to do, but you don't just do it out of rote. You do it out of a sincere heart and a pure faith. That's essentially what he's saying. But I think that some fail to realize the depth of this and appreciate the grandeur in spiritual worship, worship that is in spirit and in truth, and they start aggrandizing different facets of worship. They'll say, well, those who worship with pure emotion, they're obviously more spiritual, and they conflate emotionalism with spirituality. So those who shed tears are more spiritual than those who are more stoic in their approach to worship. You know, some people just don't cry very easily. But there are some individuals who would associate tears with spirituality. And it may be a byproduct of someone who is very spiritual and focused on God in worship. But an individual who has never cried a day in his life may be just as much spiritual as the one who is shedding tears when saying a prayer or leading in the Lord's Supper. And so there's nothing wrong with being emotional, but there is something wrong with emphasizing emotion purely as spiritual worship. And then there is the danger in doing that of starting to manufacture emotion, trying to draw tears out of people. That's not anyone's job of leading in worship. Some some preachers are guilty of that. And some people subscribe to that kind of preaching and they view it as something positive. Man, he made me laugh. He made me cry. He made me sad. He made me happy all in one lesson. That was a good lesson. But what was the substance? And so we need to be careful that we don't find grandeur in something that God has not subscribed as great and superior in thought and in action. But then there's the the danger of aggrandizing and looking for grandeur in simply form worship. And again, we're not taking away from the sincerity that comes with some emotions or the legitimacy in worshiping God according to the prescribed form, but we need to not view just form for the sake of form as something valuable. If it's insincere, it's not going to be pleasing to God. We can do everything right as far as form goes, everything according to the book, if you will. But if our hearts aren't invested in it, that's not going to be acceptable to God. Jesus is not saying that form in and of itself is something great. He's saying that form, according to God's commands, is something that's pleasing to him if it is coupled with the sincerity of heart. And I think we need to grasp that. There are those that we read of in the New Testament In Romans 2 and verse 20 of the Jews who had a form of knowledge and truth. 
And that suggests that they had the facts and they thought they were okay with the facts, but their hearts were not circumcised and so they were not acceptable to God. Ephesians 5 and verse 19, speaking of our worship and song, says that we need to make melody in our heart to the Lord. Did you know that you could sing the song, the words of a song that is purely scriptural and is the deepest, most profound song that speaks the most spiritual truth of any other song? You can sing that song, sing all the words, but if you don't understand it, you don't believe it, your heart is not involved in it, you're not making melody in your heart, that is not acceptable to God. And it's no better than singing a song of fluff that really has no substance. Our heart needs to be involved as we are submitting to the truth. The individuals who just find grandeur in form worship, but their hearts are not in it, there's a danger in conflating now traditions and opinions with the traditions that are divinely given of God. Here's an example. This goes way before my time, but some of you may Remember, before air conditioning at the Lord's Supper, there was a cloth that went over the elements of the Lord's Supper. And that cloth went over the elements of the Lord's Supper because since there wasn't air conditioning, the windows were open and insects get in. They didn't want insects to get in there. Well, I've been told when air conditioning was introduced, and that really didn't serve any practical purpose, that it continued to be used, which is fine. It's just a matter of how they've always done it. But some thought it would be sinful to take that cloth away. And some would even bind that. Isn't that foolish? But I think they've fallen into that category of their tradition, their thought, their way of putting that cloth over the elements of the Lord's Supper, as silly and foolish as it may seem, has some kind of grandeur or significance in it. Instead of understanding the significance is in the memorial prescribed by the Lord. It doesn't matter if it's served in, in those little plastic cups or if it's served in sippy pouches or whatever it may be. It doesn't matter if it's a metal lid or a cloth that's laying over it or if it's just sitting out free to the elements around us and the air is exposed it's exposed to the air it doesn't matter and so we've got to be careful that we're not falling into this um, love of form instead of just loving the truth out of sincerity and worshiping God in spirit and in truth there's another angle to this that I want to look at though man's thoughts and ways are inferior to God's and really this is saying the same thing God's thoughts and ways are superior to man's but the way I want to look at it is understanding that when our heart is set on pleasing the Lord we need to not take anything away from God's word, certainly, but we don't need to add anything to God's word, certainly. It's not that our ways are better than his. But when we read the word of God and we come to an understanding that this is what God wants us to do, this is how we're going to be pleasing before God, we need to have confidence in that. There is the, what I might describe as, it's not enough mentality that I've had experience with some Christians having that they're sincere in their service to God. They want to do what God tells them to do. And they know what God tells them to do. And they do what God tells them to do. But for some reason, they have no confidence that they're right and pleasing in the sight of God. And it's because I think they fail to see the grandeur in the simplicity of God's commands. Some things he tells us to do, they're not really that hard to do. Even though some men forsake it and some men add to it, the simplicity of just doing what God said to do, it's really not that crazy and great and grandeur in the eyes of man but we need to not be discouraged by that instead we need to see how grand God's commands are and understand if we're doing what God told us to do and our heart is invested in those actions that God is pleased with us and it is enough it's not enough in the sense of earning our salvation it's enough in the sense of meeting the conditions that God has set to be those who are benefactors of his grace that we read about in Isaiah chapter 55. 
Here's an example. The grandeur of servitude, especially among the brethren. And I think that all of us from one degree or another have been guilty of viewing it through this lens. I know certainly I have been where I fail sometimes to realize the magnitude of doing a simple act of service to one in the world, but especially to a brother or sister in Christ, that that God would see that as something great and magnificent. And it may be something very, very simple, mind-numbingly simple. And when I don't see that it's that grand of an act indeed, I may go to the extent of forsaking doing it. And it it leads to a, a spirit of, of discontentment with God, what God would require and has required, and that arrests us in a spirit of inactivity. We need to acknowledge the depth and the width and the height and the length of God's grand commands. Consider in Matthew the 10th chapter in the limited commission when Jesus sent out those 12 apostles and sent out others as they were inspired of the Spirit to speak the things pertaining to the kingdom of God that was to come solely to the house of Israel, not to the Gentiles yet, but to the house of Israel. And in the first section of this limited commission to the house of Israel, he talks about the negative things that might happen to them, that will happen to them. People are going to threaten you. People are going to throw you into prison, shut you up, bring you before judges, and, and make sure that you always confess Christ before men so he will confess you before the Father. But it's not all going to be bad. And that's where we pick up in verse 40. And he says this, He receives you, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. You see the grand juror and those who would receive those that were sent out in the limited commission in contrast to those who would, who would persecute them. If they received the apostles who were speaking in the authority of Christ, they were actually receiving the Son of God Himself. And so there's, there's a magnitude in that kind of service. And He's telling them that this is what's going to happen, but how much more encouraging is it to us to do those simple deeds? He says, whoever receives a prophet in the name of a prophet and a righteous man in the name of a righteous man. That's a Hebraism simply by saying, whoever receives a prophet as a prophet or a righteous man as a righteous man. And so they accept the words that they're speaking as from God. Those are accompanied by the signs, wonders, and miracles that are validating their words. And in their faith, they understand that that must be true because of the signs we're seeing. So they accept that as truth. They receive them as a prophet. They receive them as a righteous man. And to receive them and have fellowship with them is to also receive and have fellowship with the Lord. But I want us to especially note verse 42, a verse I think we're very familiar with. Whoever gives a little, one of these little ones only a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple or as a disciple, that little one being a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. I think that we're understanding of how meaningful a cup of cold water can be, especially in a climate that is such dry and arid and hot as that of Palestine, that for an individual to give a laborer of the Lord, who, by the way, in verses 9 and 10, Jesus said, don't take anything with you. It'll be supplied by those who fellowship you and receive you in this way. And they receive that cup of cold water. How refreshing that is physically, but also in their soul, that this individual, after all of these who are persecuting me, is trying to help me and aid me in my service to Christ. How far that goes. 
In Mark 9 and verse 41, it translates it in this way in Mark's account of this same circumstance. Whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, you will by no means lose his reward. I think we can understand it from the contents of Matthew 25 when Jesus speaks of this judgment scene that will come. Remember in verse 34, he says to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, then you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus is calling us to see the grandeur in service to brethren. And I think it's especially emphasized for us there as we want above all else to serve Christ. That is number one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second command. It's, it's inferior to the first command, but you can't fulfill the first command without fulfilling the second command that's inferior to it. And so he, he gives us this vivid image of, of how significant it is to serve each other in any capacity. And I think that at times, at least speaking for myself, I fail to see the grandeur in that command. And I think, well, it can't be that big of a deal to be able to serve someone in that capacity, but even a cup of cold water goes such a long way and as a service to the Lord. Notice the value that is seen in that by Jesus' example in John 13 when he takes the form of a serpent, a servant, not a serpent, and he washes the disciples' feet. And he explains in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We take after the manner of Christ. Consider the encouragement that the Hebrew writer gives his audience in Hebrews chapter 6. This after the reproof that he gives to them of not growing. They've become those who need to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God when they should have already risen to the stage of being teachers themselves. And he says, wait a second, make sure you go on from these first principles because if you persist in this path down this road, then you're going to reach the point where there's no return, where it's impossible for us to say anything to you to renew you again to repentance. Now that seems pretty discouraging, but he's warning them and he's giving them that reproof they need. And then he turns the page and he, he starts to show the value of their past service and encourage them that this meant so much and it continues to mean so much to the Lord. He says in verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. He said, we're confident of better things concerning of you. And, and in part, we're confident in that because of what you've expressed in your past. And by the way, he says, God hasn't forgotten that. There was a magnitude in that kind of service, no matter how simple it was. As Jesus said, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. I think we also need to understand one other thing, and we can understand a lot, but I wanted to mention this, the grandeur of attendance. I think that one of the reasons, not necessarily the blanket reason for all who forsake the assembly, but one of the reasons that 
Christians don't always assemble as they should. It's because they fail to see the significance in their presence in the assembly. And this is how it goes. Well, assembly is not really that important for me because I really don't bring much to the table. You know, I'm not as vital a part of this congregation as so-and-so over here. So, so if I don't come to the assembly today, my present or my absence is not going to affect anyone. I, I won't be missed, if you will. I'm not that big of a deal. And sometimes it comes forth in some kind of a, a semblance of humility, but all it is is an excuse. And it's this idea of it's not enough. I, I can assemble, but it won't really matter at all. But if God commands us to assemble, each and every one of us, then your assembly in the name of the Lord absolutely matters, not just to him, but to everyone else who is a part of the church. The individual who has that that thought that the command of God for all of us to assemble is just not that great of a deal. It's it's not that much in significance. They have this attitude of themselves that Paul warns about in 1 Corinthians 12. Now this concerns spiritual gifts and they differ in the gifts, so not all they're same. But he notes that some think that their gift is less significant than the gift of others. He explains in the the, the degree and the figure of the body in 1 Corinthians twelve fifteen. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if there were all one member, they were all one member, where would the body be? And I think we can understand that. Some may assume that one part of their body is more important than another part of their body. And in the grand functionality of the human body, it may be so. It's more important. But if you take away your ears, you can still live. But where's your hearing? And so if we want a completeness, a maturity of a congregation, he's saying that it doesn't matter what your gift is, whether someone as a man views it as great or someone as a man views it small, you're part of the body and and you bring something to the equation. The Apostle Paul mentions it in this way in Ephesians 4 and verse 16, speaking of, of the edification of the body of itself, that in the head of Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Every joint supplies. He's saying the same thing he said in 1 Corinthians 12. It doesn't matter what your gift is, what your ability is, what you're doing, when you assemble every joint supplies. In the edification of the body, every member has a part to play. And it doesn't matter how some men may view the differences in different parts of service. Not everyone is is in the front of the assembly. Not everyone even has the authority to be in the front of the assembly leading in worship in some capacity. But that doesn't mean that what you do is any less significant. And that's what the scripture is laced with. Examples of little things that people have done that have gone so far. And the assembly is one of those things. Your being here matters. Consider that in the passage that we often go to when we consider assembling. Hebrews 10 and verse 24. When the Hebrew writer says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And he doesn't specify preachers, elders, 
He doesn't specify prophets in this days, these days of prophecy. He doesn't specify tongue speakers. You come to the assembly to stir up love and good works. Don't forsake the assembly, tongue speakers. He's speaking to Christians, period. And he says, let us, that's collective, himself included, consider one another to stir up love and good works. And he says that happens by assembly, not forsaking the assembly, which implies you must come to the assembly. And in doing so, you stir up love and good works. And it's a part of the edification that we bring in our participation in worship. When you sing the songs out of sincerity and your voice is heard, that's stirring up love and good works. It's, it's stirring us up in our mind as we have the word of God being sung one to another and read one to another and studied as we're all collectively involved in this. And it allows us to be agitated to love and good works when we leave this place. But when you aren't here, that can't happen from you. And sometimes it comes because we just don't appreciate the command of God to assemble. It doesn't mean that much. I don't bring that much to the table. He's talking to just Christians here. And he says, when you assemble, you exhort one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. In chapter three, it's quite evident by his exhortation to exhort one another daily while it is called today that they assembled more than just the first day of the week. And that exhortation was something they continued in daily, especially in this time of turmoil when the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was approaching. That may be the day of verse 25, but for us, it's probably more effectively put the day of judgment. We need encouragement to fight the good fight of faith, to finish the race, to keep the faith so that God can welcome us into his eternal kingdom in heaven, being in his presence, worshiping for eternity. We need encouragement. And the way that God, by inspiration of the spirit, is giving to us to be that encouragement is the assembly. And it's not just to any Christian, it's to every Christian. And we need to value the command to assemble. Consider it, as Paul puts it in Romans 12, again in a context of some spiritual gifts, but some not spiritual gifts. He says in verse 4 of Romans 12, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That means we depend upon each other in the body. Verse 6, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let it use it, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches and teaching, he who exhorts and exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. It almost goes without saying, but it's quite obvious the apostle Paul by inspiration thought it needed to be said. If you have the gift of prophecy, don't just let it sit there and collect dust prophesy if you have the gift of ministering then minister teaching then teach if you have a capability that capability came from God and he gave it to you to use for the advantage of the members of the congregation you're a part of and it can be something as profound as inspired speaking of prophecy or something as simple as serving ministering use it in our ministry we need to see the grandeur in God's commandments. We need to acknowledge that when he tells us to do something, if we comply, it's of great value. It's very important. And he certainly will reward us in the time to come. In a way, we should remember those verses of Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we need to cling to his thoughts and ways. We need to search for his thoughts and ways. And we all need, always need to see the value in his thoughts and his ways. We want to extend the invitation to anyone who is here this morning who has not obeyed the gospel. And it may seem to you that it's foolish that being immersed in a pool of water will take away sins. But God said that is the case. And we can understand the grandeur of that as we know that in the waters of baptism and submission to Jesus' command to do so is where we meet his very blood that is precious and powerful to wash those sins away. And no other place but in the waters of baptism and the submission to Jesus' words. And so if you haven't done that, we encourage you to do so this morning. And if you have fallen short of the glory of God and you have obeyed the gospel, but you've fallen short in some way or fashion, or maybe you need encouragement, whatever it may be of a spiritual nature, that we can assist you with this morning. We invite you too to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.